Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast about how the digital technologies are changing healthcare, health, how they are implemented across the globe, and what kind of challenges companies can expect when expanding globally. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and our topic today are employee benefits. This year's big question in healthcare is, can big corporations be the disruptors of the rigid and risk-averse industry as healthcare is? Amazon partnered with JP Morgan Chase and Warren Buffett, Apple is designing medical clinics, and Uber wants to disrupt ambulances. The healthcare industry is predicted to be worth 9 trillion US dollars by 2020, and some say tech giants most of all wish to get a piece of this pie. However, the key potential for the U.S. is the decrease in cost with new solutions. David Cliff, the diabetes industry expert, interviewed in the 22nd episode of Medicine Today of Digital Health Podcast, as this podcast was named before January 2018, marked the entrance of large corporations into healthcare as a promising potential for the industry. Apple, Google and Amazon all have very good knowledge about consumer habits and what engages them. Translating this to healthcare could bring a lot of improvement in medication and therapy adherence. I definitely recommend listening to the 22nd episode with David. He had a lot to say on behavioral change, why it doesn't work and how diabetes can be improved globally. But let's return to the employee benefits and healthcare costs. The US spends almost 18% of the GDP for healthcare. The free market and the private healthcare have a lot to do with the high cost as they give industry players a lot more freedom around prices of services and solutions compared to the highly regulated European market. The second contributor to high cost in healthcare in general are inefficiencies. Personally, I see one thing very interesting when it comes to changes around employee benefits and how employees in the US are approaching healthcare costs. In the public systems, such as we have in Europe, employees are less cost aware and feel more entitled to healthcare services and medicine. In the US, on the other hand, employers are the main payers of healthcare bills. Prices of healthcare services are much more variable depending on where an individual seeks care. And consequently, the interest of employers to keep employees healthy is much greater than in many public systems. This is why it seems logical that companies are establishing doctor's offices close to or inside the companies to give workers faster access to primary care, which can significantly decrease complications and costs in further medical services. In this episode, you will hear how Time Warner, a global leader in media and entertainment business in television networks and film and TV entertainment, is approaching employee health. Time Warner has more than 25,000 employees around the globe, meaning that the company faces many different country-specific regulations when it comes to the health of employees, what programs they can offer them and what kind of analysis they can do with the data of the employees. I talked to Kathleen Harris, Vice President of Benefits at Time Warner. Time Warner has 26,000 employees in 25 
countries globally. What's the approach, the view and the emphasis you put when it comes to their help? Um, so the majority of our employees are located with in the U.S. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on the U.S. healthcare system and benefits in the U.S. But um, on a broad-based wellness perspective, we try to include all of the countries. And we have a few things that are broad-based, like Fit Nation, um, that include almost all countries at this point um, in terms of broad-based wellness. And um, our approach really is trying to do something for everyone so that everyone feels um, sort of that their health is being impacted in a positive way. Um, we do think that wellness programs are, you know, for the greater good. We do it not for the hard ROI, but because we think it's the right thing to do by our employees and for our employees. So that's really our approach. So can you mention a few specifics of what you offer or provide for your employees? Yep. So, so across the board, if you um, outside of the U.S., if you don't get away just from the medical, if you get away from the medical coverage just itself, um, we do a lot of things. We do everything from offering chronic condition coaching, like through Livongo, to expert medical opinion, which we do offer worldwide through Advanced Medical. Again, our broad-based wellness program is offered through Virgin Pulse, um, and that does everything from helping us with the Fit Nation activities, the running, the walking, the cycling, the triathlons, um, to doing things like um, measuring healthy habits, to conducting walking challenges. Um, so we do those types of things. We um, provide an array of um, various um, navigation tools for employees to help navigate the, at least the U.S. healthcare system. Um, so that's been primarily our big focus has been the chronic conditions, broad-based wellness, and then helping employees navigate the system and get the right answers or get to the right care just in time. So how does digital health intersect in this story. So in the last five years, how has your strategy changed? How do you choose what employees will be able to use and how does that help you as a company? So in the last five years, there's been so many changes in terms of digital health and Silicon Valley is, in particular has really had a number of um companies and startups that have been really appealing to large employers like us. Um, I would say most employers our size, um, 25,000 and larger who are self-insured. So that means that, you know, our costs are our costs because um, we're paying for all of the claims um, have been really um, involved in players like Castlight, which is a transparency tool. So employees um, understand what things cost. So, and they understand the variability in costs. So of the healthcare uh... A procedure, for instance. So for instance, an MRI. Um, an MRI can be incredibly variable in cost. So that an MRI at a hospital might cost three times as much as an MRI at an outside facility or a standalone facility. So we wanted to teach employees the variability of costs within the U.S. and actually because of high deductible health plans, um, when employees are paying more of the costs up front, we want them to understand what the actual procedures cost before they go and get them. So Castlight, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but it actually is a, it's, it started off as a price transparency tool, but it actually was able to provide pricing data based on claims data for um, types of procedures. So if I had a cough and I was looking up a PCP, it would give me a list of PCPs in my geographic area and how much they might charge to treat strep throat or to, um, or to, you know, just see you um, for a basic cold or flu follow-up. So those are the types of things that we've started 
putting in people's hands because we wanted people to understand the true costs of care. And then from there, really, um, a lot of the digital therapies have just taken off in the last few years. And I mentioned Lovongo, which so, we... Okay. So when it comes to transparency of medical costs, did you notice any change in behavior or attitude from the, uh, from the employees? Um, s- somewhat of a, a change in behavior. We actually just noticed people were actually starting to understand um, the true cost of things. Um, and it was really, it's really been more educational, I think, to employees. We do see interesting patterns, things that you would expect. Um, younger employees are looking up costs for things that you would associate with younger employees, like having babies. Um, and older employees are looking up things like, you know, back surgery, back pain, um, those types of musculoskeletal um, issues, orthopedic issues. So you do see sort of the age groups following and what you would expect in terms of the types of um, healthcare that they're seeking and the costs of that healthcare. Um, I can't say that we've seen um, huge changes, but um, a, a little bit, I guess, of the story is on um, sort of complex radiology, MRIs, and things like that. We have seen employees make different decisions based on um, MRI costs. So, you know, MRI is an MRI is an MRI, and it can, the variability of that cost is so different depending on where you go to get it. And we have seen employees make a shift um, to getting um, lower cost, but still same efficacy, same um, outcome in terms of MRI. So the wellness industry is, according to Forbes, estimated at around $8 billion. Uh, yeah, so that's $8 billion at the moment. But the problem with the wellness industry is that it's really hard to measure how much the prevention is actually decreasing healthcare cost or um, the engagement is just, it, it does not follow the theoretical potential of pre- prevention. So in terms of wellness and prevention, digital health solutions, what kind of things um, have you tried out? What kind of startups uh, have uh, you noticed and you see potential in? And so um, I agree with the article on Forbes. Generally, wellness is a longitudinal event, so it takes many years to achieve a positive outcome when it comes to most wellness programs. Um, I think most employers like us do it because we know that it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, there's a lot of great anecdotal stories. I think the empirical data is harder to come by. Um, but at the same time, um, we call it the halo effect. Um, if you do something good for your employees, everybody feels good about it. So in wellness programs or something, everyone feels good about. Um, in terms of engagement and outcomes, we focus more on engagement than we do on actual outcomes. So um, we will tend to do something like um, have a walking challenge or some sort of health challenge um, and we'll actually sort of aim for the engagement goal. So getting 40% of employees involved. And by doing that, um, engagement goal is what we'll do is we'll set a a prize or an epic prize or something that if we get to 40 percent um everyone who participates actually is entered into a raffle or some sort of um award opportunity to win an award basically for participating and we do actually see um more engagement than in the past when we've actually simply just paid employees to participate they're more interested in um kind of tell a friend and kind of being more enthusiastic about getting more people involved than 
than they were about receiving maybe a hundred dollar reward just for participating on their own. Did you do any measurements or analysis in terms of how does this um, affect the health and productivity of the workers? Well, for us, it's a little bit hard to to do that analysis because um, we don't have employees that punch time cards, so we can't really do a productivity analysis. Um, but in terms of health, I mean, most of the information that there is actually one empirical piece I can give you, but most of it comes to us anecdotally. But one empirical piece um, around the Fit Nation program I mentioned, um, where we do the walking, the running, the cycling, the triathlon challenges, and we actually, I haven't mentioned this before, we actually pay for the coaches. We actually pay for coaches to come on site and train our employees. So it's to, not completely only digital measurements it, or wearables. It's actually... Nope, it, yeah, correct. Yep, it's actually coaching. And then we use Fitbits. We've given Fitbits out to over... About 7,500 employees at this point. We have about 5,000 employees that consistently use Fitbits, um, or some sort of digi digital wearable advice, wearable device that they're, um, actually getting points for, um, every day on Virgin Pulse if they're tracking their steps or they're participating in an exercise program. Um, but so yes, we've, we've incorporated the digital with actually the functional kind of fitness activities. Um, but one empirical point was we looked at the people that participated in, um, Fit Nation as a whole against all of Time Warner employees. And we actually found, and this goes against what most people say about wellness programs, we actually found that people who had higher risk scores, so poor health in general, were actually participating in more of the Fit Nation programs um, than you would have expected. So the desire to get better health was there? Was there. Yep. It was actually there. Um, I mean, it wasn't by any means a perfect study, but it was um, good enough to show us that, you know, we were actually making a difference. And a lot of the skepticism about wellness programs is, well, if I'm already healthy and I'm going to get rewarded for being healthy, then I'm going to be the one that joins the program. But I think we've done a good job about getting people involved and excited and shown that like we want to do well by our employees and we want our employees to value health and to value their own health. And so that's why they've participated in people from all kinds of backgrounds. People we've had people who have never even, you know, swam before, like learned to swim. We've had people who um, had, you know, um, very extremely terrible chronic conditions, like participate in programs and do much better um, in terms of long-term control of a particular chronic condition. Again, those are mostly anecdotal stories, but um, you know we do hear them year in, year out. And we're about um, six years in to the Fit Nation program. The U.S. is a bit specific when it comes to healthcare costs and incentives for participants because um the the they either have to pay for for the insurance with deductibles it can so participating in this kind of programs can um, can influence their own personal healthcare costs but you're um working in 25 different countries so how does the interest for these kind of programs and uh, solutions differ from country to country. Yeah, so we've actually stayed away from from tying sort of our broad-based wellness programs to plan design or the cost of care itself. So we're not giving anybody a discount on a premium or lowering a deductible or providing a better plan. Um, if you were participating, and by a better plan, I mean a, like a lower deductible or what have you, um, if you are um, participating in any of the wellness programs, um, we've actually just been able to translate sort of the enthusiasm, the camaraderie, like that type of, um, 
philosophy across all countries. You know, I think that kind of resonates with employees that, you know, it truly is something. And actually, I think being distinct from the health plan is actually better um, because employees kind of see it as a pure investment in their health um, as opposed to a pure investment in their health in order to lower costs for everyone. Um, you know, that's a difficult message to send. Whereas when you're sending something that's positive um, and you're showing that it's positive and you're spending money um, in positive ways for employees, I think they appreciate that. You've been in the field of employee health and benefits for 20 years. If you could reflect on two decades of changes and deteriorating um, health trends, what would you say has changed in two decades? What are the solutions that are helping uh, curb the negative trends in in health and what are the things that you are looking for um, as the most uh, useful or optimistic? So I think the things that have really been great over the last five years, and we've talked a little bit about how the ACA had many sort of suboptimal aspects of it, but it actually had a lot of positive things to it where it got people talking more about accountable um, care organizations and, um, you know, sort of changing the fee-for-service model and sort of, you know, making the healthcare system take a second look at itself. But I think one of the exciting trends has really been what I always call the disruptors, the people who are taking a completely different look at the healthcare system and saying, oh, I see that that's broken. And they have a completely different approach on how that's fixed, how that can be fixed. So I think that's been an exciting trend. Um, in the past, you've kind of always wished um, for a tool or solution. And I think there's a lot of very bright people who are working on tools and solutions that um, can fill in the gaps and the holes that the system itself is not able to fill in. So that to me is one of the most promising aspects of um, what's going on in healthcare today. I really do feel like there's this new digital revolution and people are super excited um, to try to improve healthcare by actually taking an outsider's point of view rather than being sort of trained in healthcare, healthcare economics and kind of, you know, making the same assumptions that we've made for years. Um, people are taking a fresh eye at it, a fresh look at it with a fresh eye. So that's sort of been exciting to us is to see all the, all the growth um, in the startups where and they are making a big difference for our employees and in the healthcare system. Are there any special examples that you could mention as good use cases? Kind of what are the things that uh, you find most inspiring? Yep. Um, so one of the things that we started offering two years ago was Lavango for diabetes. Um, you know, obviously almost every program you ever offer um, is always met at first with skepticism, right? Because people want to know, why do you want me to participate in this? Um, and uh, the great thing about Lavango is that it's been so the message is so clear about why um, we want people to participate and it's so easy for them to participate and the user interface is so easy for for people that the word of mouth has spread like wildfire among people who um, are in sort of the diabetic cohort. They they tend to find each other. Um, and um, we've had wild success with that, which has been really kind of great for us because we do think it's a wonderful product and it's a good thing for our employees. So that's been one of the positives as well. Again, I would even say Castlight in terms of um, – getting employees to start talking about or at least acknowledging the costs in the U.S. healthcare system, understanding that the prescription drug that you might pay 20% of the cost of really isn't, um, you know, it really isn't $80. It's $400. Um, those are the types of conversations that sort of the digital startups have allowed us to have that we've 
we've known about and wanted to have for years and we've had for years, but until someone can see it in the palm of their hand, they, they can verify it, they can validate it, that they understand that it's real data, um, it, that that's been real helpful to us. So when you're designing new things that you're going to include in the, in the benefits and in your efforts to improve uh, employee health, how much do you collaborate with doctors and in the end, employees themselves? It's them we're talking about. So how much do, do they contribute with ideas? So employees contribute a lot um, to ideas and maybe it's, um, maybe it's the, industry I'm in, but uh, we get a lot of feedback from employees. They're not afraid to share um, their experiences. So um, they provide um, the feedback. Um, I would say that for the most part, we don't get tremendous interaction with the provider or facility. I think for um, employees, um, they find lots of opportunity. Um, and then, you know, we're always looking at our data. So again, I mentioned we're self-insured. We own our data. We work with a, a large data warehouse, Truven, and each year, each month, each quarter, actually, we're able to kind of look at how our data is trending. We can see what chronic conditions um, are issues for our employees. We can see gaps in care. We can see um, trends emerging um, in the healthcare system that maybe um, not everyone's aware of. And one one trend that I always found fascinating was about Two years ago, and this is actually just something probably specific to the U.S. healthcare system, but about two years ago, all of a sudden compounding drugs became a huge market. And we had employees um, who were running up tens of thousands of dollars in compounded drugs. And um, it actually became well known that this was not necessarily a good practice. Um, and so we were actually able to put in an edit, just that an employee would have to stop and get permission to go forward with the compounding. And since then, we've had employees who have, um, who are spending thousands of dollars out of the, even their own pocket on compounded drugs. We've seen that they've been able to have the same results with lesser cost medications. Um, so just being able to kind of monitor our data and our trends has been extremely helpful um, to us in terms of identifying, you know, what types of edits or plan design or new programs we want to put in. Can you uh, mention or describe any of these changes? So what kind of trends did you see and uh, what changed afterwards? Um, I mean, you can see geographic patterns of care. You, uh, for instance, you can see employees who will still, no matter what, choose the most expensive medical provider because that medical provider has a certain name. Maybe they're on a certain street like Park Avenue or they're associated with a certain facility that has a prestigious name. But that, that, um, facility for that particular condition that the employee is seeking care for may not have the best outcome. So we can see those types of things and then we can try to address them. So for instance, on that, in that type of case where we're seeing employees use high cost facilities, but actually having lesser outcomes than we would expect, um, we put in expert medical opinion, advanced medical. So um, those are the types of things that we're able to address by looking at our data. If we change the perspective a bit, so um we talked about the the positive aspects and the benefits that you that you get so far but um what about the the skepticism where in the past do you feel that the potential was detected but it turned out not to 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 
be uh, able to exist in practice. Maybe answering it a little bit more broadly is that we're always careful about how many vendors we add because it's overwhelming to employees as it is in terms of who to go to for what, and they're already having trouble navigating the system. So the vendors that we do do business with, we, we want to make sure that they have a clear and compelling case, that they are making a difference, that their message is clear. Um, we, you know, we also can't as a benefits team, we're stretched in many directions. We can't be sitting on top of the vendor. So we have to make sure that that vendor has enough um, wherewithal and resources, et cetera, to be able to deliver the best possible service to our employees. So I would say when we come across a vendor that has a good idea and then we kind of dig a little deeper and maybe it's just one or two people and they're expected to be serving a subset of 30,000 employees, um, you know, that kind of is cause for concern. Um, also too, um, large employers expect things to be somewhat customized. It can't really be off the shelf. And so we tend to kind of shy away from, um, companies or startups where everything has to be sort of, um, you know, off the shelf, take it or leave it. Um, it just doesn't work, um, for large employers. And I don't think messaging in general that is, is not targeted or is not, um, is not written in a way that your culture, your company culture understands it generally works. So it's not going to work for us. So how many companies or startups do you work with at the moment? I know for a fact that we have 23 vendors that fill the gaps in the healthcare system for us. I'm trying to think about how many are startups. I might say half of them are startups, but I would have to go back and, and double check on that. But I bet probably about half. You're also part of the Northern Business Group on Health, which is a network of employers, providers and insurers that work to improve quality and reduce cost of healthcare in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut and Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about how is that influencing your company policy and what has this network contributed to better healthcare for the employers? So the Northeast Business Group on Health is actually a bunch of large employers, mainly in, in New York and New Jersey um, that um, participate in this coalition. Um, I think as a broad coalition, we've tried to do a lot in terms of um, changing sort of the regional um, healthcare delivery um, in, in, in New York City in the greater New York area, um, trying to emphasize moving away from the fee-for-service model, um, emphasis on ACOs, and emphasis on enhanced primary care. So those are things as a, as a coalition that we've tried to do. Um, in terms of networking with each other, I think we learn a lot from each other. Sometimes we're able to validate, gee, I saw that in um, my claims data, or this is occurring with my carrier who's paying my claims, or I'm having, a, you know, I'm seeing some weird things pop up contractually um, with some health systems or with some providers. And it's a good way to kind of validate that, you know, you're kind of not scratching your head and thinking it's just, you know, you as an employer that's struggling with the same, with this one issue It's actually all of us. And then we're able to kind of noodle on it together, which has been really helpful. So I think the more employers talk with each other, the more we're actually um, able to come up, maybe not with a solution, um, but come up with sort of the specific situation that we're hoping someone um, can help us address. So that's sort of been the, the nice aspect of being part of a coalition. One interesting thing, I think, is that the theoretical p 
potentials of uh, digital technologies, wearables, measurements are quite different from the the benefits that they bring in practice because people are, get used to, get tired of devices. And uh, one of the biggest conclusions, I think, uh, was lately that in digital health, you always need to include a human factor uh, in your solution, meaning that you need a coach, mm-hmm. that you need an actual personal contact, and that the digital part is only like only a tool. It can be a standalone solution. What are your experiences around that? I absolutely agree with that. You can't take out the human element of it. Um, And actually, some of the solutions where you asked before that, you know, have concerned us where we haven't moved forward with them. It's almost as been as if the digital solution itself is the end all be all. And for us, what was concerning was that there was no human element or there was a seeming lacking human element to it. So I completely agree that the, the human aspect of it is just as important as the ability of the digital tool itself to um, help um, engage the person. Is there a solution that you used and it turned out to be completely different from what you expected it to bring? You know, because like you try different things and you some some of them work, some of them don't. It's innovation and it's implementation and you can't really ever be sure what's going to be perfect or what not. We have implemented things that haven't worked, but I think it's more important, like lessons that we've learned for it from it. Um, so to your point. Um, so what were the lessons? Uh, yeah. So uh, things have to be dynamic. Employees don't like to spend a lot of time reading. Um, they also like to be validated for good behavior, believe it or not they want they they want the good job you know you've you've done a good thing today you've done your 10 healthy habits or you've walked 10,000 steps or you've competed in a challenge so i think those are the things that we've learned along the way i've learned i think we've learned that camaraderie works for everyone competition works for some um i think we've um also learned that um we have to continually kind of work with our employees and take feedback from our employees um, to improve. We can't, we can't guess the data. The data is somewhat of a, a cold element, right? So to getting to your point about the human aspect of it, the anecdotals and the feedback from employees who are actually interacting with the tools and the systems are just as important in helping us design and change and flex going forward. About other countries outside the U.S., what are the biggest challenges you're facing them there? Um, really regulatory issues are the biggest issues outside the country. So data privacy issues and data sharing issues are really the things that sort of hinder us from being able to, um, do some of these things outside of the U.S. Um, you know, also some things just don't translate. Um, so for instance, it might not make any difference in NHS if you get unlimited free test strips for diabetes, whereas it, it's a financial, um, impact to an employee. It's a positive financial impact to an employee in the U.S. So, um, so there's sort of those types of things that kind of come up, but I would say really the biggest issue for us in terms of getting things translated is not the need. Like I think there's, you can, there's needs everywhere and there's a solution for a lot of those needs everywhere, but it's the regulatory aspect of it. If I understand correctly, you can know more about employees in the US than in other countries. Correct. Yes. Yep. What What's the opinion of the employees um, in the other countries about that? Are they, I'm, I'm sure you probably approach them for, I don't know, consents or something. Are they not interested in this kind of analysis? 
I, it's just impossible to do some of the analysis in other countries, but um, in certain circumstances where they know about certain programs or things that the, you know, the U.S. Um, company, uh, the U.S. component of the company is doing and there's interest, it's just not, in many cases, just not possible um, to do it in, in the local area. So maybe just to, to, to conclude the, the conversation. What is the future strategy of um, Time Warner when it comes to health of the, the employees? How does digital health f- fit into that? And maybe what are you most optimistic about when it comes to further development? Are you even optimistic? Oh <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely optimistic when it comes to digital digital health and digital therapeutics. I mean, I do think that that is. Um, it, that whole field is just moving so much faster than the healthcare system and even the health carriers and claims payers could possibly move on their own. And there's just been so much incredible investment and interest by very, very smart people um, in digital therapeutics that we found a lot of great solutions that in the end, I mean, it, it really is about helping the employee improve their health, maintain their health and, you know, and, God forbid, get to the right answer. If something horrible, you know, terrible happens to the health, we, we get uh, to their health, we get them to the right place at the right time and get them on the right path. So I am very optimistic about digital health and digital therapies sort of supplementing what the healthcare system right now isn't able to do for itself, at least in the US. This was the fifth episode of Faces of Digital Health. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, leave a review, which will help other interested in digital health and healthcare find the podcast as well. Stay tuned.